electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everyone. On this election eve, I'm Kelly Evans. With less than 24 hours to go until the polls close and a whole lot at stake for your money. From tech regulation to taxes to energy policy, there's a lot riding on tomorrow's outcome. Not least the fate of the next stimulus bill as the COVID outbreak worsens. The Dow and S&P are rebounding today after the worst week for the major averages since March. But like Scott just said, the Nasdaq unable to hold its earlier gains. It's gone negative by a couple of points now. We'll look at why and delve into all the possible outcomes for stocks over the coming days and weeks. Let's get the market set up this hour. Bob Bassani standing by with more for us. Bob. And Kelly, it's very interesting midday action. It looks to me like the market is choosing to believe stimulus and reopening is going to be actually happening, even though there's issues with that. And they're playing down the work from home stories. Let me just show you today uh, in the middle of the day, we were positive openings on all the sectors, including tech. But in the middle of the day, we went negative on the Nasdaq just a short while ago. That's very, very interesting. Dow still holding up. S&P is holding up, although it's 30 points below where it was earlier in the day. Reopening plays. I'm talking retailers like Gap, Under Armour, uh, Tapestry, as well as some industrials like United Rentals. Those are all reopening plays. They've been holding up very well today. Other reopening plays holding up. Parts of the travel and entertainment area. I say parts. Hotels are holding up. Uh, Visa's holding up. MasterCard's holding up. Live Nation. Airlines are not. We've heard a lot about discount fares. But the airlines are the only part of the travel and entertainment not holding up. What's not holding up? Also in the middle of the day, tech. They're selling tech. Remember, this is largely a work-from-home story, but mega-cap tech, Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, Facebook, all have been underperforming since after the first hour, half hour of trading or so. Also underperforming. All the other big stay-at-home names that have been so successful in the last six or seven months, your Zooms, your Slack, your DocuSigns, all of them underperforming. Bottom line, guys, they're playing for a stimulus story here right now and downplaying the work from home. Back to you. It's a fa- it's a strange one, Bob. It's a fascinating trade. We're going to talk more about it. Thank you so much, Bob Bassani. We have stocks overall starting November strong, but investors are still puzzling over what the election will bring. You also have bond yields, which have been rising since bottoming around half a percent back in August. Even last week, while stocks sold off, the yield on the 10-year perked up. Right now, we're around 0.86 percent. What is this all telling us, and do these markets have different ideas of what this election holds? Let me ask our market guest today. Bob Michaels here. He's CIO and head of global fixed income strategy at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Doug Ramsey is CIO of the Luthold Group. And Kim Forrest is CIO of Boca Capital Partners. Great to have you all here. Bob, just start with us. Quick thought on a lot of these disconnects that we're seeing here. What do you make of the fact that this, the sell-off in stocks last week came with rising bond yields? Um, what is the bond market telling us right now? Um, hi, Kelly. The bond market is telling us that investors are getting concerned about the degree of modern monetary theory in the market, or basically both the fiscal and the monetary authorities are working together to engineer a recovery. 
and everyone's looking at where uh, the election polling is going. And if you have a blue wave, you could have a significant fiscal spend funded by a lot of Treasury debt, supported by a central bank which is buying it and keeping rates very low. If that's the scenario, at some point the yield curve has to steepen because if the Fed wants 2 to 2.5% inflation, that scenario will give it to them. So, Bob, you're basically saying the bond market is betting on a Biden win, on a Democratic Senate, and on a whole lot more spending that's coming and that may be inflationary? Yeah, it, it seems like a lot of ifs, ands, and buts there. But the polls are the <laughs> polls. Yields have backed up a little bit. And if you sit there and think about a 2 to $3 trillion stimulus, and basically all the central banks are begging governments to borrow and spend. I never thought I'd see that. I'd always thought the central banks are supposed to force austerity, but they learned from the great financial crisis. They want two to two and a half percent inflation. This is one path that gets you there. The market's got to start to price that in. All right. So, Doug Ramsey, let me turn to you. And if that's the message that Bob is gleaning from the bond market, what are you reading into the stock market? What do you make of the rally that we're seeing on this election eve and the cyclical, the somewhat cyclical nature of it in particular? I mean, tech's down today. What does that all tell you? Uh, well, I don't disagree with the comments on uh, MMT. I mean, it's certainly uh, very uh, worrisome from a fiscal perspective. Uh, so I think that's part of this rotation. You know, I think some of it is just... I mean, the incredible valuation gap between stay-at-home, uh, in which large-cap growth and tech in, in particular are the best examples, I just think that valuation gap has gotten so ridiculous that, uh, you know, the best-case scenario for large-cap growth to keep its premium relative to everything else, I mean, specifically large value, uh, mid-caps and small-caps, is actually for the economy to sink into a double dip. I mean, in that scenario, I think that obviously everything would go down, but that would keep this multiple premium up on the stay-at-home stocks. In every other scenario, I mean, if we irregularly keep yeah. to reopen the economy, I just think the valuation gap is ridiculous now between the stay-at-home stocks and everything else. So regardless of the, the outcome of the election, I think you're going to continue to see a rotation in that direction. I do think, though that a Biden win coupled with the Senate flipping over to the Democrats would hasten that rotation. I mean, for example, I think we get in that scenario, we get a partial, if not full repeal of the corporate tax cut. I mean, that would hurt the large cap stocks and especially large cap growth because they've got earnings. I mean, small caps, a lot of them, I mean, about 35% don't have earnings. So at the margin, it's, it's much less yeah. of to mid and small caps. So I think the, the rotation well, is going to continue in that direction regardless of the outcome of the election tomorrow night. I want to take your comments on tech and ask uh, Kim about that because I got to make sure everyone caught that. Doug basically said, you know, if you want big tech in the stay-at-home trade to perform well, you need a double-dip recession, which, you know, I don't want that outcome. Uh, but it's interesting to me, Kim, if, if that's the only way big tech can do well. I don't know if you would agree with that. I know you've been a longtime fan of a, of a lot of names in the sector. I mean, how would you expect tech to perform? Uh, does it depend on the outcome? Does it depend on the pandemic? Or are these stocks that should be winners in the new economy period? Well, I think it depends on what tech you're talking about. If you're talking about um, the ones that are in legislative targets, 
like uh, Facebook and Google, I think some of that pressure might end up in the stock. But just as tech in general, I think you really have to understand where, how it's used and what drives growth. Um, look, whether we're staying at home or working in offices, our employers want to have the most productive um, team uh, out there, right? So what gives that um, productivity? Technology. So there's some technology that is always going to be growing and in demand, and that's because it uh, gives you productivity. So stay at home. Let's talk about that. Sorry, COVID, not politics, has brought that to us. And I think a lot of um, businesses are now looking at the footprint of um, their existing businesses and saying we could probably have smaller offices and move people right. in and out of working places. So that is going to shift people's um, how they spend their money, and it's going to end up in tech to enable those productive workers. So I think if you look at Kim, productivity to... and tech. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. But, so let me just say this because our time is winding down, and, and I, I want to sure. ask you about this specifically because I haven't seen you since kind of the Intel, you know, uh, right. what do we call it, face plant? Um, as you're Ooh. describing the productivity enhancing companies that you would stick with, and, and you and I have talked for a long, long time about Intel being one of your favorite kind of value right. or, or technology plays. Are you in or out of the stock? Are you giving up, throwing in the towel? No, not yet. I still, I do like the way um, uh, the chips are just kind of coming together with Xilinx uh, being bought by AMD and ARM being bought by um, NVIDIA. It's in a in super exciting time. I think Intel, especially with their new CEO, they have a shot, but um, you know they really have to ramp up their game, and I'm still in just because of the assets uh, of that company. You have a strong stomach. Had to ask you about that, and appreciate everybody's yep. thoughts today on what the stock market's telling us, uh, where you should be investing right now. Bob Michael, Doug Ramsey, and Kim Forrest, thank you all, and we'll check back thank in you. soon. Since the spring, we've been tracking the swing states pretty closely using CNBC's States of Play survey, and we've seen big changes in four key areas that could tell us something about the outcome tomorrow night. Steve Leisman joins me now with a closer look at what those areas are. Steve? Kelly, the 16, count them, 16 States of Play surveys in the key battleground states have long shown a closer race than the national polls, and they've tracked dramatic changes in voter attitudes on the economy, covid and, of course, feelings about the candidates. Let's get right to the key charts here. Since the spring, former Vice President Joe Biden has held a lead over President Trump on handling the coronavirus, a lead that has widened as we've neared the election. And then take a look at this. If you overlay on top of this, it looks to have helped widen Biden's lead over President Trump in the battleground, standing at about 5% on average in Arizona, Florida, Michigan, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. That's our six battleground states. But it stabilized. You see that last track of gray, that gray line there? It stabilized in the last poll. COVID has become more important, dramatically so, over time. Respondents' personal connection to COVID, do you know somebody or have you had COVID yourself, has increased from 31% to 76% while we've been polling. Biden's net favorability also steadily risen. President Trump he saw a drop in the spring, might have been connected with the death of George Floyd. It also uh, bounced a bit around the Republican convention, but never fully recovered where it had been. One final look on Election Day, the president could benefit from improving views on the economy. Those rating the economy excellent or good has been increasing heading into the final days of the election. 
but not enough to overturn the pessimism compared to the optimism. Question, whether the president can make this more about the economy and chip into Biden's favorability rating. That's what he's been trying to do on the campaign trail. For Biden, it's how much he can make this about COVID and the president's handling of it. We're going to find out tomorrow, Kelly. We have another, the final states of play, battleground survey. And later that night, guess what? Some actual election results, Kelly. Hopefully, maybe. Steve, thank you very much, sir. And we look forward to that tomorrow. Steve Leisman. If the polls are right about a Biden win, that would seem to leave little chance of a lame duck stimulus deal before the end of the year. But what if COVID cases keep getting worse? Could a bipartisan deal still happen? Joining me now to discuss that, Ian Shepardson is chief economist at Pantheon Macroeconomics. And Michael Strain is director of economic policy studies at the American Enterprise Institute. Welcome to you both. Michael, let me start with you. What do you think the odds are of a stimulus bill coming if we maybe game out the different scenarios? In what scenario would it be most likely to happen before the end of the year? And in what scenario would it be least likely, do you think? Well, I guess the the most likely scenario is a scenario where President Trump wins re-election and, and the Republicans hold the Senate, um, because that kind of you know freezes in place a, a political status quo that makes the election uh, less important and and, and that makes uh, the uh, turnover to a new Congress and a new presidential term in January less important. I don't think that's going to happen. I mean, I I I think well, you know, like like everybody else, that the smart money is on Vice President Biden winning. Um, the uh, least likely scenario, I guess, is the flip of that. If there are big gains uh, for the Democratic Party in the Senate, if the party expands its majorities in the House, if, if Vice President Biden gets elected tomorrow, you know, then I think there's going to be a lot of uh, uh, a lot of pressure in the Democratic Party to just hold off and wait until January to uh, to to pass another another stimulus bill. Say that again, Michael. So if in the uh, event of a Biden win, you think the pressure would be to hold off? And obviously, it got to wait be, until you get the Senate in and everything. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I think the pressure would be to hold off until until after uh, Vice President Biden is sworn in as president in late January. Uh, there would just be a lot of pressure in the Democratic Party to to say, hey, let's wait a couple of months uh, and 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 design the bill that we would that we would want to design. Ian, let me ask you about that, especially because does it matter what that margin is? So uh, if the Senate is 51, 49 Democratic versus more than that, um, if it and, and obviously we have to keep asking the question, you know, what if that anticipated outcome doesn't happen? Uh, do you see a scenario in which even with a blue wave, that COVID gets bad enough, Ian, that uh, there's motivation, uh, bipartisan motivation to say we've just got to get something passed here while we can. Yeah, that's possible. I mean, we could be, heaven forbid, but we could be at 200,000 COVID cases a day within a couple of weeks from now. We could be seeing, I think we're likely to see the number of people in hospital above the peaks that we saw in the summer and in the spring by Thanksgiving. Uh, and we're going to see a steady increase in the number of people in ICUs. You know, all the numbers are, are deteriorating. I can't really see anything good in the COVID data. So that should, in, a, in an ideal world or in a normal world, that should result in a policy response. But we have to contend here with the politics, uh, with a small p, of the lame duck session of Congress. And it will depend, I think, substantially on, on the attitude of some of the Republicans who are vulnerable in 2022. I, mean, I know it's painful to be starting to think already about the midterms, but 
I promise you the people who are up for re-election in 2022 are thinking about it very hard. And there's a bunch of vulnerable Republicans in, in 22 who may well put a lot more pressure on McConnell uh, to bring a, a COVID a relief bill in the lame duck session than they were prepared to bring uh, before the election. So there's still a, a really a, a great unknown here over the attitude of Senate Republicans to passing something in the face of horrible COVID numbers uh, during the lame duck session. So I'm not going to bang the table and say that any bets are on or off. I, I'm, I'm prepared to be open minded here because I think there's a lot of possibilities still. Well, so you're saying it's possible, you know, it's like the, the Jim Carrey line, you know, so the odds might be one in a million, but you're saying I have a chance. Um, would you put the odds at one in a million or would you say they're a little bit higher than that? Oh, I think they're better than that. You know, I, th I think they're much better than that, because you know, if, if McConnell has just lost the Senate uh, to the Democrat majority, he will be thinking very hard about how he can win it back in 2022. And, and, and the great irony here is that if you'd asked Republicans six months ago whether they thought they were going to lose the Senate in 2020, they would have said, no, no chance. We're worried about 22 because that's when we got a lot more vulnerable senators up for re-election. So here they are potentially having lost it in 2020 when they didn't expect to and still facing that very difficult map in 22. If they want the, to win the Senate back, and I'm sure Mitch McConnell does want to win the Senate back, uh, then they're going to have to think differently. They're going to have to do something different. Now, that doesn't mean they're all going to start playing nice and, and cooperating with Biden. But I, I think to be doing nothing if we're hitting really horrendous COVID numbers uh, is going to generate yeah. a great deal of material for attack ads from the Democrats for a long time to come. So I'm not ruling it out. Michael, before we go, since we had such a big shock in 2016 with the outcome relative to the polls, uh, does anything tell you that might be possible again here, that it could be a Trump win or a Republican Senate based on the, I think, the Iowa poll that narrowed over the weekend, uh, the Pittsburgh newspaper endorsing the president, I think the first time they've endorsed a Republican in, in a couple of decades' time, uh, some of the turnout we've seen at the rallies at the they're not flotillas if they're on the road, the highway, the highway caravans. I mean, does anything to you suggest that or, or maybe tell us kind of where you would put the odds of an upset here? Oh, you know, I'd say the president has something like a, you know, 25 percent to 35 percent chance of of winning tomorrow. I mean, it certainly could happen. I think everything would have to break right for him. Uh, but if you look at the polls in Florida, if you look at North Carolina, uh, if you look at some polls out of Pennsylvania, uh, the president's in striking distance. And there's you know a lot baked into those polls about turnout models. Uh, but I think that, that among uh, public opinion experts, there's some concern that it's just really hard to, to figure out um, who's a likely voter in the middle of a pandemic with you know, record uh, uh, with potentially record yeah. turnout and, and, and with a lot of a lot of voting uh, already done. And so I think the you know, the the smart money is on Biden, but I don't think it's a foregone conclusion. Well, 25 percent is better than one in a million uh, in terms of long shots. Thank you both uh, today. We really appreciate it. Checking in on this election eve, Michael Strain and Ian Shepardson. And don't forget to watch CNBC tomorrow evening for special coverage of the 2020 election. Your money, your vote, beginning at 7 p.m. Eastern and going all night long. Coming up here on The Exchange with the pandemic weighing on Americans' minds, progress has been made with Regeneron's antibody treatment, but supply will be very low. We'll look at why and what that means. Plus, tech's tax trouble. If President Trump's tax cuts are repealed, a number of stocks in the sector could take a hit to earnings. We've got the names and the numbers ahead on The Exchange.
This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. Regeneron's COVID antibody drug has proven effective in helping people. But if it got FDA clearance today, there wouldn't be a sufficient supply of it. Meg Terrell is outside of Regeneron's headquarters with more on this story for us. Meg? Hi, Kelly. Well, Regeneron began work on this antibody drug way back in January, and the progress it's made has really been in record time. But the problem is that it's an incredibly complex drug to manufacture, that end-to-end for each batch takes three to four months. Now, the reason is this drug is actually manufactured in living cells, cells that come from the ovaries of Chinese hamsters. Now, that sounds crazy, but it's actually a pretty common way of manufacturing these biotech drugs. So they're grown up in these bioreactors that kind of look like a beer brewery, but much cleaner. So the length and the complexity of that process is why Regeneron right now only has 50,000 doses uh, that would be available if they got the green light from the FDA. They hope to get that up to 300,000 within a few months. And they've partnered with Roche to get to 2 million next year. But folks like Scott Gottlieb have been saying the government should have been investing earlier in ramping up this supply along with the companies. I did talk with uh, Dr. Monsef Slawi about this. And you can see that the investment that Operation Warp Speed has put into vaccines is more than $10 billion, whereas for therapeutics, it's less than $2 billion. But he noted that many more people are going to get vaccines than therapeutics. And he pointed out they have been focused on that space. But Kelly, this is going to be a problem. And this drug will have to be rationed if it gets approved soon. Back over to you. Did you say cells that come from the ovaries of Chinese hamsters, Meg? (laughs) I did. They're called Cho cells, uh, Chinese hamster ovary cells. Okay. Uh, does Eli Lilly have similar problems with the kind of expanding production this quickly? Because they have a similar drug, right? That's absolutely right. And they say they have 100,000 doses, but theirs is a single antibody, whereas Regeneron's is two antibodies. So kind of they have to make double the supply. And Eli Lilly has partnered with Amgen. And so you're seeing these sort of cross-industry partnerships to get this done. And even so, we still don't have enough. It's wild. Uh, Meg, we appreciate it. Wish it was better news, uh, but hopefully they can find some way to ramp this up more quickly. Meg Terrell at Regeneron Forest today. Let's look at what's happening overseas. Are all of the lockdown lights, so-called in Europe, a preview of what could be coming to the U.S. in the months ahead? Germany, France and the U.K. are all entering into various degrees of a lockdown as cases continue to rise there. Italy continues to tighten restrictions as cases rise as well. And NBC's Bill Neely is live in Rome for us with the very latest. Hi, Bill. Hi, Kelly. Yes, the second wave sweeping across Europe. And right now here in Rome, the Italian government is meeting to discuss what measures it will introduce, probably coming into force on Wednesday. The Prime Minister Giuseppe Conte gave broad hints of what uh, Italians can expect in Parliament this afternoon. Uh, And surprisingly, 
some of the measures are actually lighter than Italians had been expecting. But the hardest hit areas, Milan and Naples, that's two of Italy's three big cities. There is likely to be a kind of mini lockdown in those cities. And there will be some national measures as well. All museums are likely to be closed as of later this week. Uh, transport will be cut by about 50%. Shopping centres will be closed over the weekend and so on. For some people, especially health experts, these measures are too little too late. They've been calling for a national lockdown. Uh, for other people, they're too much. Businesses still protesting at these measures. And Milan's governor, for example, saying he doesn't want to impose a lockdown on his city. There should be a national lockdown. So Giuseppe Conti is trying a regional approach. That's exactly what the British Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, has tried for weeks. Over the weekend, he abandoned that and he's been in Parliament, in his Parliament this afternoon, explaining why from Thursday, England will have a full national lockdown. Again, like Conte, he said he didn't really want to do it, but he had to do it, otherwise the health system uh, would be overwhelmed. It won't be a full lockdown like Britain experienced in March, April, because schools, colleges, universities, for example, uh, will be uh, allowed to stay open. And just like Giuseppe Conte, Boris Johnson is facing pressure from within his own party and from business leaders saying, hey, uh, th this is just too much. And of course, from health experts who as much as six weeks ago were advising the government that a lockdown was needed. So these two countries trying different approaches. But as I said at the beginning, second wave sweeping across Europe. Some countries really badly hit, France especially. The Czech Republic has one of the highest death rates in the world. But here in Italy right now, the government meeting to work out those measures which are likely to come in here on Wednesday. Kelly? Bill, you know, this is being billed uh, as the lockdown that could save Christmas. Do you think people should take it for granted that it will only be the month of November in most cases, or would it continue and possibly threaten that holiday too? Well, Boris Johnson said that today that the lockdown in England would end on December the 2nd, but there have also been noises from within his own government that if these measures do not work and numbers keep rising, then the lockdown could be extended. But yes, it's save lives and save Christmas. That's not the official mantra, but I think that's what we all understand by this. And it was interesting, Kelly, in your introduction, you said that the U.S. is looking at Europe uh, and, and seeing what a second wave looks like and what further tough measures will look like, because the numbers here are just rising off the charts. And if that continues in the United States, well, who knows? Uh, whether it's right. President Biden or a re-elected President Trump, uh, those are decisions that they will have to take come January. Yes, and we all know perhaps that outcome uh, will tell us what course we take as well. Uh, Bill, thank you so much for, for uh, joining us. We really appreciate it. Uh, Bill Neely of NBC. Coming up, the ad dollars are adding up. It's a record year for political ad spending, and there's a slew of stocks that are cashing in on it. We'll break down the names. Plus, President Trump says Biden's tax plan is the largest tax increase in history. Well, it may not be the biggest, but it does rank pretty high. We've got the numbers. And don't forget, you can always watch us live on the go on the CNBC app. We're back in a couple. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. 
To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Imagine earning a degree that prepares you with real skills for the real world. Capella University's programs teach skills relevant to your career so you can apply what you learn right away. Learn how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu. Welcome back to The Exchange. Markets are losing a little steam right now. The Dow was up 541 at the highs, but we're up 262 right now. The S&P hanging on to a 19-point gain. The Nasdaq is negative, and let's run through some of the big movers and kind of see the picture today. We have oil prices higher after closing out the worst month since March for crude. Oil's up about 2%, roaring back uh, midday after it fell about 2 bucks earlier in the session. We're around 36 and change. Retail's also moving higher. Everything from the Gap to L Brands to Home Depot and Best Buy are in the green today. The uh, ETF, the XRT, is up about 2%. And manufacturing activity, the ISM survey, very, very strong this morning. It hit a two-year high in October, and that's helping the industrials. Names like Stanley Black & Decker, General Dynamic, and Old Dominion are leading there. Uh, Not participating in today's rally are the airlines. Southwest Airlines is the worst performer. The whole sector under some pressure. Southwest down about 3.5%. And take a look at Apple, the company announcing an event for November 10th. New Macs with Apple chips are expected. The stock still down about 1% on the session. Uh, It fell 6% in October, and big tech continues to be the laggard today. Let's get to Sue Herrera now for our CNBC News update. Hi, Sue. Hello, Kelly. Hello, everybody. Here's what's happening at this hour. The World Health Organization is denying reports that its director general tested positive for the coronavirus. But Tedros Adahom Ghebreyesus did go into quarantine yesterday after a contact tested positive. The agency says Tedros will be tested if symptoms emerge. South Dakota's Attorney General Jason Ravsborg was distracted before striking and killing a passenger walking along a highway shoulder in September. That's according to a state investigation. But that report does not say what distracted him. Ravensborg told a 911 dispatcher that night he hit something, but he didn't know what it was. And a federal judge says Republican activists attempting to throw out 127,000 votes cast at drive through voting centers in Houston face an uphill road in convincing him that they should be voided. Houston is a Democratic-leaning area. And if you are looking for a bit of a pick-me-up while you wait for election results, Krispy Kreme will be giving out free donuts to celebrate the vote. You get an original glazed and an I Voted sticker. Kelly, back to you. Wish there was one close by. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Thank you very much. Sue Herrera at headquarters for us. Coming up, record-shattering donations this election season. Private equity giving more money to campaigns than ever before. What sway will they have? We'll explore that. Plus, one analyst says big tech could take a hit to earnings if President Trump's tax cuts are rolled back. He'll join us with the names and how bad it could be ahead. We're back in two.
Welcome back to The Exchange. Stocks are off session highs this afternoon, and the Nasdaq is now lower by 31 points on the eve of the election. Speaking of the election, we are tracking all the money that's been pouring into it this year. Julia Borston is looking at the record-breaking spend on political ads. Leslie Picker is looking at private equity's political sway. And Contessa Brewer is in Florida with a look at the demographic that's being most targeted by campaign cash. But we begin with Julia Borston on who's benefiting from the billions being spent on ads. Julia? Well, Kelly, there has been record political ad spending in this presidential election cycle, $8.3 billion spent in total. Now, looking just at spending on traditional media, political ad spending is up more than two and a half times from the 2016 cycle to $6.7 billion. Now, the biggest beneficiary of that is broadcast television, bringing in some $4.5 billion up from $2 billion four years ago. And the biggest winners are these broadcast stocks. From March lows, Nexstar is up 89%, while Sinclair is up 79%, and EW Scripps up 73% from their lows. Gray's up more than 50%, and Tegna is up 28% from those lows. Now, those stocks, though, are all down this year and actually are all having their worst year since 2008 on risks, including Um, cord cutting, as well as ad dollars shifting from television to digital ad platforms. Now, while broadcast TV still dominates political ad spending, its share declined to 60% from 75% four years ago, and that was on the gains of digital. And the big winners from political ads' digital growth include Google and Facebook, as well as streamers such as Disney's Hulu and Comcast's Peacock. And do remember, Kelly, of course, that Twitter is not accepting political ads. Julia, in a way, I'm surprised that the total spend uh, isn't higher. You know, $8 billion is a lot, but when you think about, you know, what it could buy you, I'm surprised it's not higher. And it's interesting you point out those share losses for broadcast. I mean, that's a pretty big difference from 2016. This all makes me wonder what happens come 2021, whether you're broadcast or even if you're Facebook. I mean, is this going to create a big hangover when this campaign cash goes away? Well, look, I think the biggest hangover is going to be for those broadcasters that really rely on it. So we're talking about local television because television is really where you see so much of that brand advertising that is really pulled back because of COVID and due to COVID. The digital platforms, they are thriving. And for them, this political ad spending has been a nice boost, but certainly not something that they rely on, really a smart, a smaller piece of their overall pie. But if you look at these stocks like the Tegnas, like the Sinclairs, these are the companies that are going to really suffer when they start losing that, that boost that they saw this year, really an unprecedented boost from political ad spending. Yeah. And you mentioned Twitter not taking that cash. It's one of the worst, probably the worst performer in the S&P today, unrelated, but still down more than 5%. Julia, thank you. Let's take a look at private equity and where they're putting their money because they're putting more of it in this year's election than ever before. The industry is also putting its weight behind a surprising choice, perhaps. Leslie Picker has all the details. Leslie? Hey, Kelly, that's right. The private equity industry is putting a record amount of money into the election, as you mentioned, and the vast majority of contributions to individuals, individual candidates are backing Democrats. 61% of the industry's donations went to blue candidates, while 39% 
backed red ones. It's the highest proportion that the industry has given to Dems since at least 1990 and the first time the party captured a majority of P.E. contributions in a decade. Although Axios notes that more of P.E.'s soft money donations have gone to conservative leaning PACs. Still, this is somewhat surprising because in recent years, the Democratic Party has been far more vocal about regulating P.E. They've largely supported upping taxes on carried interest. That's the performance fees generated by P.E. managers. And the Dems have also backed legislation that would make private equity firms be more on the hook for liabilities of the companies that they acquire. But industry executives that are supporting Democrats point point to potential positives of a blue wave like the potential for fiscal stimulus and a clearer tariff strategy. And additionally, P.E. would be poised to benefit from a large infrastructure plan. Kelly. So, Leslie, are we to expect that whomever they throw their weight behind, they're expecting that carried interest will be preserved? It's unclear what they expect on the carried interest front. Surprisingly, it hasn't been as much of a discussion this time around as it has been uh, in the midterms of 2018 and, of course, the 2016 election. This time, it isn't as much of a talking point. You don't really hear from from Democrats mentioning the word carried interest as they talk about their various tax plans. It's part of it. Uh, but I don't think that, um, you know, the various contributors to these uh, these campaigns are as concerned about their carried interest as the ability to rake in profits, uh, say, from other areas like infrastructure or clearer tariffs or stimulus or things that could benefit their portfolio companies on the ground. Yep, they're saying, show me the money just in a different way. Leslie, thank you, Leslie Picker. Let's get to Contessa Brewer now, who has a look at one of the most important demographics in the Sunshine State that campaigners are targeting. Contessa? Kelly, most of the 130,000 people who live here retired from somewhere else, and in some cases, attracted by the low taxes in Florida, the weather, of course, and the lifestyle, and for some, like-mindedness. The Villages has grown so fast over the past decade, it's been named more than once the fastest-growing metropolis in the nation. And since the pandemic, we've seen Northerners, especially New Yorkers, moving for different reasons. And now they're voting in a battleground state. I think every vote matters. This is obviously it's an important election, and everybody should be getting out there and voting. Um, you want to know my political yeah. feelings? I'm a registered Republican, voted for Trump already. Well, he's not alone. 68% of voters in this county went for Trump in 2016, compared to 49% overall in Florida. And though there are Trump signs and Republicans proudly declaring their political identity everywhere you turn, there are also some signs that Biden's peeling off some of that support. There are now a few more Biden golf cart parades to compete with the frequent Trump ones. And President Trump made the villages a priority with a campaign stop here. So did Mike Pence. Boomers and older voters make up half of all voters in the state, Kelly. And statewide, senior support is neck and neck between these two candidates but you wouldn't know it here. Contessa, you've perfectly captured, I think, the Florida that my neighbors who just recently moved down there uh, send in their videos all the time as well. I mean, they are obsessed with their golf cart. I'm jealous. Can we get some golf carts here? Do you think they'd ever let us it, in New Jersey um, take them around the neighborhood? It's not the same if you don't have the weather to go along with it, Kelly.
<laughs> yeah, I don't know. They're pretty nice these days. They got the roofs. They're all electric. Contessa, thank you. We'll check back in with you soon. Contessa Brewer in Florida for us. And be sure to tune in to CNBC's Your Money, Your Vote 2020 special election night coverage. It all begins tomorrow night at 7 p.m. Eastern time. And when will it end? It won't. It's going all night long. President Trump called Vice President Biden's tax plan the largest increase in history. And while it's not quite the biggest, it's definitely up there. We're going to dig into the numbers and the companies that could be affected coming up. First, though, two more consumer-dependent companies filing for bankruptcy amid the ongoing pandemic. We have those details next on The Exchange. Welcome back. COVID is taking a toll on businesses across the country. Friendly's is the latest restaurant chain to fall victim to it. The fast food chain's parent company, FIC Restaurants, is filing for Chapter 11 bankruptcy after the pandemic caused sales to plummet. It will sell substantially all of its assets to Amici Partners Group for $2 million, allowing nearly all of its 130 restaurants to remain open for the time being. Friendly's isn't alone. Two mall operators are also filing for bankruptcy protection. CBL and Associates is going into Chapter 11. They own more than 100 properties across 26 states. And the largest mall owner in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania Real Estate Investment Trust, well, they're also filing to restructure. They just opened the massive fashion district Philadelphia last year. Still ahead, tomorrow's election could have a big impact on tech, and it's not just higher taxes. The other potential headwinds facing the likes of Apple and other hardware companies is next after this quick break. Stay with us. Welcome back. President Trump calling Biden's tax plan the largest tax increase in history. It may not be the largest, but it's up there. Robert Frank joins me now with how it ranks and what that could mean for the economy in a Biden win. Robert. Hey, Kelly. Well, uh, Joe Biden's tax plan would raise federal tax revenues between two and a half trillion to three and a half trillion just over the next decade. President Trump, of course, calling it the biggest tax increase in the history of our country. Now, by historical measures, Biden's tax plan is big, but it is not the biggest. Now, there have been over 20 tax increases, increases between 1940 and today. The top three, as measured as a share of GDP, were during and after World War II, with the largest in 1942 at over 5% of annual GDP. Biden's plan would be about seven-tenths of 1% of GDP in its first year. That would rank it about 10th in history. Now, in the second year, the Biden plan would be a little bit higher at about 1.5% of GDP. That would rank it fifth and make it the largest since 1968. But even if you looked at the plan over its entire 10-year period, Biden's plan would rank about fifth overall in history. Now, as for the overall tax burden, Biden's plan would increase federal revenue as a share of GDP to about 19 percent. That sounds high, but it would really bring us back to the levels of 1998 and 2000, which wasn't that long ago and at that time wasn't that high. Kelly, back to you. Uh, Robert, still, since the nature of this would be different than those kind of post-war tax hikes, would that affect the impact on the economy? Look, the nature of it is different, one, because of the bizarre environment we're in with the pandemic and what was going on with the economy, and also just 
the rate of change. You know, during World War II, we had high tax rates getting a little bit higher during those periods. Now, at least with capital gains, we're going from 23 to 43%. So it's the rate of change in the environment that could make this a little bit different. All right, Robert, thank you, sir. Robert Frank. My next guest says big tech firms could have the most to lose if corporate tax rates do go back up. For more, let's bring in Amit Daryanani. He's a fundamental research analyst for Evercore ISI. I mean, it's great to have you, and I want to get right to cut right to the chase here because uh, tell me about the earnings per share reductions you possibly see coming down the pike. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, again, it, it, the work we had done was encompassing essentially looking at if tax rates go back to what they were in 2016. What would the impact be? And, you know, there are some companies, and it's predominantly ones that have a heavy percent of profits that come from the U.S. Uh, you could see an EPS impact of down 20, 25 percent of the EPS impact. A company like Apple, which actually generates a good amount of their profits in the U.S. still, you could see EPS reduction north of 10 percent if tax rates go back to the way they were four years ago. So it's possible that Apple's earnings could go down 10 percent under a, a Biden win if if he rolls back uh, the corporate tax cuts. Exactly. Yes. Now, again, I think the devil will be, will be in the details, how they do it, how quickly they do it, uh, the degree or the color of the blue wave that you get. Uh, but yes, I mean, if you go back to what it was four years ago, it's about a 10 percent impact to Apple. And as you said, maybe up to 25 percent in some instances. But I mean, here's my question. Investors aren't going to blame Apple if their earnings drop 10 <laughs> percent. You know, it's not Apple's fault. They're a lot more concerned with earnings uh, that show the company is, you know, poorly executing or not investing properly or losing market share, you name it. So, you know, it might affect the stock price, but is it just kind of something that investors take in stride, right? I mean, what kind of impact do you think it would have? Is this kind of a one-time sell-off in the share price and a re-rate? Uh, again, we'd have to wait for this plan to actually come. This wouldn't necessarily be on election, uh, you know, when we find out the outcome of the election, would it? No, you're absolutely right. I think it also goes down to where, where is this in the priority list of things that want to get accomplished, right? Uh, my gut is, you know, it, it's hard to go back to four years ago and say, you all, all these stocks went up when you had the tax returns happen. Because um, the other element you had four years ago is all these companies, like an Apple, like a Cisco, were able to repatriate all this money back to the U.S. and use them for different purposes. Uh, so certainly, I don't think you'll have the same you'll have the same degree of negative impact the way you had the positive impact last time. Uh, from an Apple, from a you know big tech perspective, I think the two other things that may matter more is what happens with big tech regulation if there is a blue wave, and right. what happens with China relationships as you go forward. I think those things could have a more structural impact to these companies versus just tax rate. Absolutely. And there's so much to ask about, though. So before we have to go, let me just ask you, why do you think the shares are underperforming today? You know, do you read do you read an election outcome into that? You know, I'm, I'm not sure there's an election outcome. I think uncertainty or the faith there's going to be more unclarity as you go forward is what's perhaps keeping investors at bay. Uh, I do think for Apple, very specifically, you have the second set of product launches come out on Friday and I'm sure people want to see what sort of demand and what sort of acceptance they get for those products before they have a better perspective there. All right. Again, uh, Apple could go down 10 percent. Akamai, same thing. Uh, Palo Alto Networks, Sienna, maybe down 19 percent. So those are the numbers uh, for investors to focus on if we get to that point. I mean, thanks very much for your time. We appreciate it for sharing your research with us. I mean, Darianani. 
That does it for us here on The Exchange today. Thank you so much for tuning in. Still ahead on Power Lunch, SEC Chair Jay Clayton will join us with a serious warning for investors and corporations ahead of Election Day. I'll join Tyler Matheson after this quick break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. Earning your degree online doesn't mean you have to go about it alone. At Capella University, we're here to support you when you're ready. From enrollment counselors who get to know you and your goals, to academic coaches who can help you form a plan to stay on track. We care about your success and are dedicated to helping you pursue your goals. Going back to school is a big step. But having support at every step of your academic journey can make a big difference. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.